And so by learning Mandarin, you created, like you said, a whole new landscape, a whole new map of information and frames from which to draw to help you understand something else. Welcome to The Art of Charm. I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. Today, we're talking with my friends Judah Pollock and Olivia Fox-Caban. You might recognize her name from her earlier book and her earlier appearances on the show, namely The Charisma Myth. Today, we're talking about breakthroughs. We're gonna explore some famous breakthroughs from some famous people, of course. We'll talk about the default mode network and what's called the Genius Lounge, which is the subconscious part of your brain where very complex problems are solved, otherwise known as breakthroughs. And in true AOC fashion, we're going to talk about how you can use modern brain science to have more breakthroughs of your own when trying to solve complex problems and access different types of breakthroughs as well and how to cultivate habits to activate our genius network so that our brain is primed for better breakthroughs moving forward. There are a lot of practicals and great habits here, so enjoy this episode with Judah Pollock and Olivia Fox-Caban. I was thinking about my introduction earlier when I was driving up here, and I thought, okay, I just have to talk about what these guys do. Coaches. And then I thought, I don't really know exactly <laughs> what you guys do you know, I know what you say that you do. You, yeah, know, yeah. you know, I'm a writer and a consultant and a coach. And I thought, okay, back when you guys started saying that, that was a thing that you could do. And people went, oh, now it's so vague because everybody's a thought leader. And that is a big circle in the Venn diagram of coach, consultant, <laughs> writer. I do want to start with you explaining exactly what you do, even though that's the cardinal rule of not asking your guests when they show up. So Judah, he comes under the radar, but uh, you can think of him as Gandalf. He's the eminence grise who will stand behind the powers that be and advise them. He's the guy behind the guy? Yeah. Is that fair to but say? Judah looks at the organization, he looks at systems, and he looks at what dynamics happen within teams, and he looks at what is not being said under the culture that's really fucking up everything, yeah, right? sure. And so that's why we say he's an advisor. He's a strategic advisor. He's, he looks at culture. I'm a coach. I focus on one person, one person only. That's it. And I would just add to that that what comes along with that advising is having to look at a team and look at those teams' dynamics, or especially if that team is an executive staff, and then look at how those dynamics spill out across oh the organization. We like to say culture is fractal. And so you get one piece of the culture and you realize it repeats itself throughout the organization. Like a molecule of some kind of crystalline structure. Yes, of some exa kind. exactly, like a crystalline structure. And it actually goes up. You can learn it from the executive staff or you can learn it from just like a rando team within the org because yeah. that team is actually going to reflect the dynamics of the executive staff. This is kind of like when you walk into a restaurant and the staff is really rude and you go, man, the manager here must be such a dick. Exactly. Yeah. And then that, you just yeah. keep expanding that. It keeps happening. It's not going to break at any point, right? The influences are going to keep going down by really understanding what the dynamics are between all these people and between the hierarchy, the power, you can then understand what behaviors need to shift. And that's how you can actually move an organization or just a team into a different space. So bad cultural practice or whatever you would call it, right? That's almost like an infection then if it's inside your company. Ooh, nice. It's exactly what it is. And that infection will also fight off your attempt to change. It's very much an infection then. It yeah. resists yeah. even the white blood cell types who get called in to yeah. fix it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Nice. I never, done. there's only one thing I'm good at, and it's making really weird metaphors or analogies <laughs> and not knowing which one is which. Doesn't matter. They both work. <laughs> so I, I like the book. I read the book, or I listened to the book. Thank you for getting that for me, no by problem. the way. It's decent. You're, you're, Thank you're you. on it. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, it's <laughs> you made it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The Net and the Butterfly is the title of the book. This obviously means something that I sort of 
is coagulating in the back of my brain, but I'd love for you to explain what it means and why. He's the metaphor guy. I'm the, I'm the metaphor guy. Um, and we can actually talk about how the metaphors work in the brain as well. Yeah. Breakthroughs. But so the net and the butterfly refers to the two networks in your brain that you're accessing in order to have a breakthrough. And butterflies, they have very erratic flight paths. They're hard to catch. They sort of flit around. And they're very beautiful, and you want access to them. But it can be hard to sort of predict where they're going to go, where they're going to land, what they're going to eat. And that very much is how breakthroughs work in our brains. They're not something you can predict, and they're not following a linear path. And they're very often popping into your head based off of something that you're not going to be able to see a direct connection to. And so you're trying to figure out how do you induce these, right? Everybody wants to hear one, two, three, breakthrough. Breakthrough, right. And hypnosis, that's yeah. why that silly kind of stuff is really popular. Because exactly. It's, instant, it's the magic pill for exactly. some sort of innovation. Yeah. And we've tried to be really, really clear so that we can be as helpful as possible that there is no one, two, three breakthrough. But there is a series of steps you can take to highly increase the chances, to set the conditions that you're going to have a lot more breakthroughs, that you can induce them. There's this mythology that breakthroughs only come to very special people. They come randomly at just whenever. Right. And there's nothing you can do, right? It's just, it's the domain of the geniuses and the rest of us just don't have it. That's kind of what I thought before I'd read the book. I'm thinking of um, Eckhart Tolle, who's like, oh, I was just hanging out in my dorm room yeah. one day and then I woke up on a park bench fully enlightened. Enlightenment happened. And 30, <laughs> 30 years later, I'm still this Zen guy who happens to market really well on Oprah. Yeah. And I mean... <laughs> Just calling it like Just it is. leaving that there. <laughs> the thing is, is that breakthroughs actually, they belong to all of us. We all have the ability because we all have the same brain architecture for it. We are all born with a breakthrough engine, every single one of us. And what happens is, is we just kind of get out of shape. Our brains are actually structural. So it's our ability to build physical new neural connections that enables us to have more breakthroughs. And we get out of practice at doing new things. When we're kids, we're imaginative. Everything's new that we encounter. And as we grow up, things start to get more repetitive for a lot of us. And so we literally get our brains get physically out of shape. And so if you saying that you're not able to have breakthroughs or you're not creative, it's kind of like sitting on a couch for a year, total couch potato. And then somebody's like, go do 10 push-ups. And you can't even do one. And you're like, well... That's that. Guess I'm not wired for push-ups. I can't ever do push-ups, right? It's like, no, you just need to build yourself up, work out, get fit. It's the same thing with your brain and being creative, having breakthroughs. If you're not in the flow of it, your brain is kind of out of shape. This does make sense. I mean, so I started learning Mandarin about five years ago because I realized, well, I left college. I got out of law school. We started the business and, you know, this is a constant learning curve. But there's been a point at which things started to get a little bit more stable and I can't remember exactly what it was, but I was trying to learn or read or do something. And I, I remember thinking, this is so much easier when I was younger. And it wasn't just a language thing. Oh, I'm too old for this. It was just some skill that I thought, man, I would have picked this up like that in my 20s. And I just knew that it was so much better. So I thought I need to figure out how to expand the reaches of my brain and go do some spring cleaning in the corners or, you know, fix some roof shingles or whatever you want to do in there that have been leaking for a while. And I started to learn Mandarin because I thought symbolic stuff that we don't use in America, you know, looking at different things that are supposed to have sounds that aren't letters and tones and things that we don't use. And it was really interesting and it got really hard. But now I realize after still doing it for so long, not only is it not any harder than any other language and in many ways, it's hard for English speakers, of course. But now when I look at different things, I'll often use, oh, like in Chinese, how it has this and this and this. And it's just this map of terrain that would not have existed in any other way in my brain other than knowing 
a language, which by definition has got to be somewhat intuitive for humans and brains, right, to learn. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a language in the first place. That may or may not be super true scientifically, but I figure if people invented it when they invented other language and it's their primary mode of communication, it's got to be somewhat intuitive. It's just that it's using different areas of our brain that maybe an English-speaking person would use. And it's been super useful, not just for speaking Chinese, but for mapping things. You just find tools there and things that you're using in that language that don't exist anywhere else to analogize something that you're looking at or seeing or learning or plugging two ideas together. Is that what a breakthrough is? I mean, what is a breakthrough actually? You just hit upon two of the major points that come around to being good at having breakthroughs. The first one, going back to the idea of being fit or not in the process of learning Mandarin, is what we call plasticity, which is literally your brain's ability to form new neural connections. And so as you forced yourself to learn Mandarin, you're forcing your brain to get in shape at forming new connections. So it gets easier and easier because your brain is getting more and more in shape, no different than running five miles every day, and it gets easier and easier. The other thing you pointed out was this idea of associations. And so by learning Mandarin, you created, like you said, a whole new landscape, a whole new map of information and frames from which to draw to help you understand something else. And so one of the examples we use in the book that's really interesting is that the Ford Bloomfield, West Bloomfield Hospital in the Detroit area was looking for a new CEO. And they chose the former head of Ritz-Carlton Hotels, right? And at first you're like, why on earth would you hire the head of a hotel chain to run a hospital? That doesn't seem to make any sense whatsoever until you take a look at the underlying pattern. And that it's the underlying pattern you were describing in learning Mandarin. The underlying pattern is hotels and hospitals are both in the business of taking care of people. Hospitality, if you will. Yes. They're both in the business of seeing that your experience is a good one, that you feel held whether you feel held because you're on vacation, a business trip, or you're sick and need to heal. Either way. And so he brought the concept of customer service to the hospital. So suddenly it wasn't just you're a patient, be quiet, we know better. There's an element of respect. He brought the idea of checking in. So you came to the hospital and you were checked in like at a hotel and taken to your room quickly. There wasn't a lot of waiting. There were fold-out chairs against the walls in the room so the doctors would sit down and be at eye level with the patients. The patients felt more connection and the doctors got higher ratings because there's a higher EQ assumed by sitting like that. They also integrated the hotel into the local community. They created an excellent organic cafeteria that people would come to who weren't sick. They were just like, let's go have lunch at the hospital. Right. Because it was such a good thing. So the hospital won awards bringing in a CEO from hotels. So there's a way in which when you can associate from one landscape to another, you can have breakthrough ideas that ordinarily you wouldn't see. There's a third point actually that you brought up, and I just want to clarify. Uh, There are some activities that are really good for when you have set your brain in the right conditions, inducing breakthroughs. So you mentioned putting up roof shingles and doing the laundry. Those are precisely because they don't use up a lot of brain power. They won't make you more plastic. They won't make your brain more agile. Putting up roof shingles, doing the laundry, doing the dishes, these are kind of doorways into your more creative associative space. And the reason they are is because when you're focused on a task, like you're focused on a task right now listening to us, trying to sound like... In theory, focused on you guys. You're you're, you're trying to sound like you know what you're doing, right? You're putting across the right way. And we're focused on a task. We're trying to communicate the book. And so we're all using the executive part of our brain up here in the front of our brain that's very task-oriented, goal-focused, gets things done on time, keeps things in a linear fashion. Go, 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 go. This part of our brain, though, can get in the way of the part of our brain that's going to make the grand associations that lead to breakthroughs. We call that part of our brain the genius lounge. 
because it literally, it's about 10 different regions of our brain. It's a big network. And what it does is it looks at things like error prediction. It looks at future forecasting. It looks at our own personal memories. It looks at the environment and determines should we change our behavior. It takes small amounts of information and infers conclusions from them. It does a whole wash of things. And basically, when you take your executive and give it a task that's just enough to keep it focused, like the laundry, Shower. Shower. Right? Shower, shower moments, right? Yeah. To shower, putting up roof shingles, whatever your random hobby might be, taking a run, watching a stupid movie. It doesn't matter. It's like whatever yours happens to be. What happens in your brain is all the power reroutes out of the executive office to the genius lounge. And suddenly the genius lounge is just racing. It's running. It's going. Because you've given your immediate processing power just enough to do that it doesn't start interfering with what's going on in the background. Exactly. It doesn't get in the way. But here's the thing. This executive is not absent at this point because the executive has to focus the geniuses on a problem. So when you go to take a shower, it's very good to focus on what is this thing that's blocking you? What is it you want to have a breakthrough about? And by doing that, you focus the genius lounge. And then you take the shower, the genius lounge starts doing its thing and it starts seeing what's going on. So you can load up the brain with a bunch of stuff to then chew on later. Perfect. Yes. And you want to add in the new. The reason Mandarin is so helpful for you is because you also have to create a new store of information that act as catalysts to the Genius Lounge. Think of it as Legos. They have new Legos to add to the different things they're trying to build. So you have to keep new information coming in, then focus from your executive, and then the geniuses can really operate at full power. What are the geniuses doing the rest of the time that I'm awake when I'm not (laughs) experiencing anything creative, useful, or interesting whatsoever? You ever been in a chill lounge, like a hookah lounge sure. or like a kava yeah. lounge? It kind of is like that, right? They're operating and they're still taking a lot of energy, but the lights are low. They're kind of chill. They're not really going. The espresso machine's off, <laughs> right? They're not really operating at full tilt. And what the Genius Lounge tends to do a lot of is self-referencing thought. So you tend to think about yourself a lot. You tend to kind of like tell, tell them, me about you it. build the narrative of your own life a lot. And so what's interesting about this is you know how there's a connection between creativity and depression? Yeah, I have heard that, but I okay. don't know about that. It's just a, something I've observed in creative people. So here's one of the reasons. It's not that being depressed makes you creative. That's the false correlation that we Got people okay. create, right? right? And so in high school, you have these kids like, I'm going to wear all black. I'm going to sit in the corner and just look dour. And that's going to make me the next Hemingway, right? And there's this misunderstanding. Not that I know anything about that high school experience. I I never did anything like that. No, you were clearly a jock. (laughs) (laughs) Reading my Gandalf. The Genius Lounge is actually the same brain network that gets you caught in depression. How is that possible? So if the Genius Lounge never turns off, if it stays on all the time and all you do is think about yourself, and then you add a negative tilt to that, like your inner critic comes in, and you can't get out of that network, like the lounge just overtakes all your thoughts, you spiral down into depression. And what can happen is, is that's the same lounge that's very creative. So when you kind of pop out of it now and then, you can have bursts of creativity. Oh, interesting. But you don't have to be depressed to access the Genius Lounge. That's very good healthy news. Well, right. Very healthy ways to access the Genius Lounge and be very creative and have breakthroughs without being totally depressed. That's good news, right? Because, of course, we do hear the cliche of every writer ever Portrait drinking. artist. Drinking whiskey in the morning and smoking unfiltered cigarettes and trying to kill themselves. Through a <laughs> well, okay, let's separate because the whiskey apparently is a separate matter. You'll often hear write drunk, edit sober. One of the biggest inhibitors of the geniuses is our internal critics, the prefrontal cortex, when it goes into critical mode. And Ooh, I know where you're going with this, yeah. Alcohol 
quiets the PFC. The primary reason we like alcohol is because it lowers our inhibition. And that's exactly what you need to be creative is to no longer have the inner judgment on your own creative the process. The real-time editing of, yeah, exactly. of everything that comes exactly. out. You like the way she did that, quiets the PFC. PFC, yeah. yeah. I, I taught her that. Yeah, the PFC. <laughs> PFC is a football term from Judah's football days <laughs> in college. I know the other day I was like, oh, right, it's a Super Bowl Sunday. I forgot. Oh, that's right. Oh! Yeah. All of us are clearly really into <laughs> professional yeah, in sports. Getting the party ready. Yeah, yeah. Time <laughs> to get out the nachos. <laughs> Can we give examples of breakthrough processes and famous yes. people? You had a lot of cool ones. Oh, no, no, no. He's giving one. Okay. Keith Richards. Oh, uh, the Keith Richards one. Okay, so. It's my favorite. All okay. right. So Keith Richards, it's 1965. The Stones have their fourth album out, and they're touring the U.S. for the first time. And they're in Clearwater, Florida. And they are not the Rolling Stones as we know them. First of all, they're staying in a motel. Right. Second of all, they're like a mid-level band. Uh, it got compared to Herman's Hermits for people out there who are rock and roll fans and know. But the fact that you haven't heard of Herman's Hermits gives you an idea of where the Stones are at. Right. You only know them if you're into the genre. Exactly. Can we please establish this? I mean, Americans, seriously. Genre. Because she's French, we have to say genre. I know. I can drive her into distraction if you want right now. <laughs> Just get that Continue. PFC out of here. Croissant. Croissant. I am going to kill you. <laughs> Okay, so Richards is in this motel in 1965 in Florida, and they need a hit. They literally need a breakthrough. They're ambitious. They want to become the Rolling Stones. And he's sitting in his motel room. He's just playing on his guitar. He's got a recorder there, and he falls asleep. And then when he wakes up in the morning, he notices the recorder is on and has gone all the way to the end of the tape. It's an hour-long tape. doesn't really have a memory. So he rewinds the tape and turns it on, and it's got 59 minutes of him snoring. But the first minute are the opening eight bars of the song Satisfaction. He just played them or he was singing them? He played them and sang the line, I can't get no satisfaction. He said you can hear the pick, the guitar pick, drop out of his hand and hit the floor on the recording and hear him start to snore again. He literally just woke up out of his sleep with the opening bars of Satisfaction. Just because his brain was like, look, we're going to record this before we shut down or what? He's focused, right? We talked about the need for the executive to focus the Genius Lounge. So he's focused on this song. And then he falls asleep. Now, falling asleep, as much of a cheat as it sounds, is actually a classic tactic of creative people to access their genius lounge. Scientifically, it's known as hypnagogic state, which is as you're falling asleep, and the hypnopompic state as you're waking up. And then, of course, there are dream states in the middle. Is this like lucid dreaming stuff? Can be lucid dreaming. It's that twilight area. You know when sometimes you just wake up in the morning and you're just very clear? Right. And you're thinking really good thoughts? And then by the time you make it to your computer, you've forgotten them. Right, yeah, That's all the time. You, you need to keep something by your bedside so you can grab those thoughts. That's the time space we're talking about when the Genius Lounge is kind of talking directly with the executive. And they're kind of having this conversation. The executive goes quiet as you start to fall asleep. It goes quiet as you start to wake up, which gives the Genius Lounge all that power. So Keith Richards was focused, his Genius Lounge, on the need for a hit. As he fell asleep, or maybe while he was dreaming, we don't know, The genius sound kind of put this together. Imagine this. You know you have a goal. In his case, his executive is thinking, we need a hit song. So imagine his executive as a person in a suit who's in the front office. And then he turns off the light in the front office, walks to the back to the genius lounge, turns on the light in the genius lounge and says, all right, guys, we need a hit. And then he leaves. And that's important. The executive leaves the room. He goes to knit a sock, to take a shower, whatever. So he's just busy enough not Mm -hmm. to fuck things up. Meanwhile, in the Genius Lounge, the lights are on, the espresso machine's cranking. All the geniuses are interacting. The guy in the suit 
He comes in from time to time to check in and the geniuses tell him, all right, we found this, we found that, we found that, we think this is good. And, you know, he'll come back and go away and come back and go away. And what's really important is to realize that it's not a question of the executive does purely linear thinking, in the words of Andy Hunt, and the genius lounge does purely creative. It's a back and forth switching between the default mode network and the executive network. The default mode is the genius lounge. Right. Sorry. Right. Yes. Um, at one point, <laughs> There's a lot of geniuses, <laughs> clearly. At one point, the geniuses have found a couple of ideas and the suit comes back and the geniuses say, listen, we've got this thing and says, yes. That's it. That's, That's the one. It. Yeah. And he takes it back. Right. Let me bring this up top. Let me bring this up top, meaning let me wake the body up. Right. So he can write it or sing it or whatever before he falls back asleep. He made sure that he woke up enough. That was it. Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi. Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform so you can focus on what you love, creating. Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't cut into your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So keep 100% of what you earn. And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates all built in. You don't even need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. Go to Kajabi dot com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. Johnny, we know if you listen to the show, you are driven. In fact, we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to recent Indeed survey. We have hired a lot of team members over the last 17 years. Going through endless resumes, well, that's a time sink. But you know what else is a time sink? Interviewing endless people, because they're all going to give you the best face forward. That's why we love Indeed, leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash charm. 
Just go to Indeed.com slash charm right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash charm. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Where do the pieces come from? I mean, is the executive throwing a box of Legos into the room and saying, here's what you got to work with? Or are they just already there? Both. So your entire life, basically, all of your life experience is accessed because all your memory circuits are a part of the Genius Lounge. So everything you've ever experienced. And Frank Gehry tells a great story of trying to figure out how to create eight spruce in New York which was the first really box building he'd ever done. And he wanted to create that same silky, flowy feel that he does. And he couldn't figure it out. And he suddenly had a memory at like three in the morning when he was spacing out, but stuck on this problem. He had this memory of being in a church in Italy and leaning over to try and see this famous statue. I can't remember the name of the sculptor, but he was famous for the way he could make marble look like it folded on the robes of the statues. And he had this memory of the way the robes folded and suddenly realized what he had to do on the building was build a square building and then put a face on it that folded like those robes. And so it was the memory that gave him the breakthrough to the problem he had. So we're holding all of that. We're also, this part of our brain, it just looks into the future and infers like what might happen. Scientists call it thin slicing. You have a small amount of information, but you take it and you imagine out what are the possible ways it could go. Now, part of this is also reading science fiction or watching science fiction. So you see possible futures. So you have other frames in your head. Part of it is just imagining futures on your own so that you actually do the thought experiments. And then on top of that, there's the taking in of new information, which we talked about earlier, the constantly filling the vault so that there's raw material for the Genius Lounge to play with. So are breakthroughs in some ways a function of the amount of stuff that you're putting in or the amount of input that you're getting? Or is there a different overlaying set of skills that you can acquire in practice? Yeah. So it's not just about accumulating knowledge, right? If you just accumulate tons of data. Right. I know a lot of creative people or non-creative people, I should say, that have tons of useless knowledge that's not interesting or assembled in any meaningful way whatsoever. Exactly. No different than if you're trying to build a team and you just get all the best people on the team, but they hate each other. You're right. like, well, that's not a high functioning team anymore, right. is it? Right. So it's a similar thing. It's about the dynamics inside. So you want that information. You want good data, but the data can't just be completely random, right? You want it to be what we call adjacent. And that's where the patterns come in. So we're looking for the head of a hospital. Ooh, hotels are adjacent. We're looking for a breakthrough in tattooing. Oh, look, I just noticed Edison's electric pen, which is a true story. The electric pen was not one of his better sellers. Well, I read the story. It was in the book. Edison invented an electric pen. It wasn't very useful. Some guy wanted to put ink on skin. There's this way in which you're pulling information. Some of it's random. Some of it's adjacent. Some of it's connected and then focusing yourself around it and then pulling out again. So there's this constant going into the Genius Lounge and then coming back out of it and then going in and coming back out. And just so to be clear, it's adjacent can be very useful. Sometimes you also get a breakthrough from something that is completely opposite. You'll have a a breakthrough about molecular biology because you've just participated in a roller derby. Right, right. right. I've got a good one for you. Here we go. Okay. Early 1900s. There's this guy up in the North Pole, and he's on a scientific expedition, and he notices how the icebergs look like jigsaw puzzles, like as the ice breaks up. And it just, it's an image that stays in his head. Goes home, a little while later, he's looking at a globe. He notices how the iceberg images of jigsaw puzzle remind him of the continents. He starts doing research. This is who creates plate tectonics, who figures out that the continents are moving. Oh, wow. From something that's maybe only similar when you really look at them side by side, Still not as far afield as my roller derby example. 
Oh, is that a real one? I thought you just pulled no. that out of the... <laughs> <laughs> it's not real at all. <laughs> not real. Oh, okay. I was like, let's get into the roller derby. Yeah. <laughs> That's just fascinating. <laughs> the book was really interesting in that it could have just been brain science. It could have just been a bunch of like, by the way, this is how this works. See you guys later. But it's a workbook in many ways mm-hmm. that is apparently designed to be practiced and applied. It's a toolbox. Right. It really is a toolbox. All Olivia's doing. There's coachy stuff in there, which I dig. Breakthroughs seem to be coming from different angles. Are there different types of breakthroughs? Let's go over those, maybe. Yes, there are different types of breakthroughs. We identified four. We're not saying there are only four, but we identified four that we tended to see in history and with people that we know in Silicon Valley. The first one is the Eureka Breakthrough. This is sort of the most well-known, named for Archimedes. What it is is you just, you suddenly know the answer. It's a concrete answer. It can be applied immediately. There's no interpreting. There's no question. It's just there in front of you. This is the kind of breakthrough I think people are thinking of when they aha go, have I ever had one of these? Yeah, I remember I had right. one of these at some point. It's that aha moment, right? And going back to Eckhart Tolle, thing, it's like, I just woke up and there it was. And there it was, right? right. No Boom. process. Right. It just happened. And this, I thought, was a misleading if we only look at this one type of breakthrough because then we go, well, I've only had like one of those in my life or I've only had two of those in the past year in my field. So this is impossible or it's too much to work for this or... They can also be about small things, right? Archimedes, all he had figured out was how to figure out if a crown was pure gold or not. Displacement, right? Right, displacement. So it wasn't like Archimedes had figured out the nature of gravity. So Eureka breakthroughs can be about very small things as well and wonderful because they can move you on, but they don't have to necessarily change your whole life. They tend to be very concrete. And Eureka is kind of a finality. You've arrived at a solution. It's an immediately applicable solution or idea or process. Whereas the next one... Metaphorical breakthroughs. These are literally... Very often you hear stories of people having dreams, but the dreams are not specific to what they're working on. So Elias Howe of Singer Sewing Machines had a dream. And in it, he was being chased by cannibals. Cannibals show up in dreams a lot about 100 years ago, 200 years ago for some reason. I don't know Maybe why. Maybe big in the fiction at the time or something. <laughs> something like that. But they're definitely up in the lexicon. He has this dream and the cannibals are holding spears at him. But he's looking at the spears and they have holes in the tip of the spears. And he just notices that in the dream. He's like, that's a little weird. That's all that happens. He has to interpret it. That's why we call it metaphorical breakthrough. He has to interpret the meaning of the dream. He has to interpret the meaning of the image. He has the dream a couple of times and he's trying to figure it out. And suddenly he realizes that the clue to the breakthrough of his sewing machine for the lock stitch is to put a hole in the pointy part of the needle instead of the back of the needle where it's always been. That's what the dream was showing him, but he had to interpret it. So he had to move through. So when you said you're very good at making random metaphors, one of the reasons metaphors are wonderful for teaching and understanding is because they're interpreted by the right anterior superior temporal gyrus. Boom. (laughs) I was going to say boom, but I was like, I don't want you to feel self-conscious. But I'm wondering how many times that's gotten (laughs) flubbed. So it's interesting. This part of your brain, it will light up shortly before you realize you've interpreted a metaphor or had an insight. So neuroscientists can actually see you figure something out before you consciously know. Oh, that's You've figured it out. And it's this part of your brain that interprets metaphors. So the metaphor, insight, breakthrough part, they're all connected deeply. So sometimes when we have these metaphorical breakthroughs, it's a genius lounge is using dreams to kind of project something to communicate something to us. Exactly. Not always, It's a favorite communication method of the default mode network. And why you can't just tell us, we don't know. Why you can't just be overt, we don't know. Since we don't know how long dreams last, maybe the default mode network needs like six hours to tell you something that could be taught, said in one sentence. 
But since it doesn't apply to necessarily language. I think that probably has a lot to do with it is it's trying to translate into your sure. conscious awareness and it's like, uh, not quite sure how to do it. Sure. I mean, if it's not a eureka breakthrough, then maybe it just happens right. at a slower pace. Yeah. The third type of breakthrough we discovered is called intuitive. And this one is much more vague. Olivia gets these a lot where you just sort of know some. They're not vague. Well, not to you. <laughs> you just know something, but you're not quite sure how you know it. You're not quite sure why you know it. Blink. But you know, yes. Malcolm but you, you just kind of, you just kind of know. And these are the hardest to move forward with because we live in a very scientific age. We live in an age of reason, of data, of proof. And to turn around and say, this is going to work. I know this. Or I think this Greek statue is fake, but I can't figure out why. Yeah. Right. In the book. And this is very, being in the heart of Silicon Valley, under the grand mythical shadow of Steve Jobs, as everyone in the Valley is, this is the break that everybody wants, right? The kind of, I can't explain it, but I know. Like somehow in Silicon Valley, that actually holds more weight than data sometimes, because people assume the breakthrough is going to come from that intuitive place. Sure. And so one of the examples we use is of Chuck Yeager, who just sort of like, he's like, I think it's going to get easier to break the sound barrier the closer I get to it, even though everyone had crashed before him because it got so difficult to control the plane. Ah, yes. And then, of course, as he approached it, everything stabilized. And this is all based on stuff that was floating around. He just just knew. And part of it comes from expertise, too. Different people have different kinds of breakthroughs, or rather there's different styles that are more natural to some people than to others. Judah, he's the metaphor guy, so he'll have metaphorical breakthroughs. I have yet to have had ever a useful dream. <laughs> ever. Do you just maybe not remember them or you're just No, no, sure? I remember them. They're just, they are super, they're so complicated, right. I can't be bothered. Um, but my wheelhouse is the, I get two kinds and here's the difference. I get eureka breakthroughs about concrete solutions, usually in the physical world. And A eureka breakthrough, there's a concrete problem, concrete solution, and you can explain each step. Intuitive breakthroughs is when you have spent so much time in this field, in this discipline, in this whatever, that, you know, when you move from conscious competence to unconscious competence, you've heard of that one? Yes. Yeah. So it's when you arrive at that level that you don't even know how you know. Right. But that's because your default mode, your genius lounge, who is holding so much, has bubbled up the solution to you. If you remember, uh, if you ever listened to Car Talk and sure. NPR, Click yeah. and Clack from You're Boston, they were masters of the intuitive breakthrough because they'd worked on cars so much. It's, they lived and breathed it and talked about it. And someone would call it, it was like, I don't know. I, if my car's on a hill, it makes this funny noise. It goes, right? yeah. and Click and Clack would be like, well, does, is there any white powder around anywhere? And they're like, actually, there is. It comes out of my vents. It's like, and then they like, they nail it. And it's Amazing. like they've just been so enmeshed in the world that they're just creating connections. On like, the radio, diagnosing the radio. a car problem. <laughs> Unbelievable. Yeah, those guys were always kind of like, is this real? Yeah. It's I, impressive. I was listening to them when I wasn't reading Tolkien. Yeah. <laughs> Slash playing, playing quarterback for your high school team. <laughs> so we've got different kinds of breakthroughs. Okay. And you said we have different native breakthrough styles. Well, what do we need to spot ours? and cultivate it, or do we not need to worry about that? The most important thing is to realize that no one style of breakthrough is better than any other. So the fourth type is paradigm breakthrough, where it can come on like any of them. It can come in the form of a eureka, of a metaphor, or be just an intuitive knowing, but it's huge, right? So relativity, this is a paradigm breakthrough. Quantum mechanics, it's a paradigm breakthrough. People really want to have these, and very often they associate paradigm breakthroughs as a synonym for breakthrough. Just be very careful. Paradigm breakthroughs are literally one or two in a generation. They're as much a part of luck 
as they are anything else. Timing, happenstance, all kinds of things. So they exist. It's wonderful that they exist. It's chasing a dragon. You will go down a rabbit hole. So if you're lucky enough to have it happen to you, we're going to put your face on a coin or a stamp, and that's awesome, but don't chase it. Right, otherwise it's a waste of your time. You could be doing 10 smaller things with your legacy than Mm -hmm. chasing the one that millions of people are cannot catch. Exactly. So don't undervalue whatever your native breakthrough style, which is a fantastic term, which will steal. Sure. The chances are, having just heard us lay them out, people are probably being, oh, you know what, I tend to... X, Y, or Z, just having a frame at all. But then also just pay attention, just notice. Yeah. The next time you kind of have a breakthrough, like how did it come to you? I was thinking about this because I was like, what's mine? And because I don't have a whole lot of, that's it, eureka moments. And I don't really remember decoding any dream ever and thinking that was clearly the answer to this. I'm hoping that it's intuitive. Otherwise, I don't have one. I think so. And I'm so. out of luck. I remember from our very first interview, you do tend to have an intuitive sense of what's going to work for your audience and what won't. You can break a lot of things down, but you seem to have an intuitive sense for what your people needed. So I'd say intuitive. And also, I have the impression that it happens often that your intuitive breakthroughs are about your work. So I get Eureka breakthroughs about the physical world. I have never, you saw me in the physical world, right? It doesn't work that well. But I'll have intuitive breakthroughs about my work because I've spent so much time that y'all just know. I think that's your style. You've been doing this for how long? Uh, 10 years. Yeah, there you go. 10 years. Definitely the first six or seven were not that good. I mean, I feel compared to what we're doing now, I should say. But I think, yeah, it's got to be the intuitive thing. Because there are certain topics where I go, that's going to be so good. There you go. It's like cooking, though, we never talk about. And I'm like, but this guy's going to be good at explaining it in a way that my audience is going to like. Listen, trust me. If ever you said that, intuitive breakthrough. My producer has the same thing. He's the guy who goes, this is going to be a good one. And I go, I don't get it. But then we do the show and it's great. And I'm like, I don't know how you knew that. And he's like, I just, you know, because. Right, I just knew. Because we get a lot of email or because this guy's cool and it fits with what we do in some way that's nebulous and vague. Yeah, it works really well. And just to be clear for anyone out there who's sort of feeling like they do metaphorical breakthroughs, it doesn't only happen in dreams. Dreams are the easiest example we have. So we use them. And sleep is a very powerful mode of having breakthroughs. But the example I gave of how plate tectonics was discovered, that's a metaphorical design, right? You saw icebergs in the shape of jigsaw puzzles, and it sort of metaphorically then reminded you of what you saw with the continents. Sure. So he was just kind of daydreaming on this boat and then saw a globe later or a map or something and went, wow, you know what? These metaphorical breakthroughs can happen in that way where one thing is reminding you of another. The connection is the breakthrough. I'm sure that that happens to me a lot. I don't even think about it. I just can't even think of an example now because it's never registered as this is so useful. In fact, it's probably not usually about something useful in the first place. It's probably like, this team maker could be improved with this little thing, but I'm never going to do it. I have that happen all the time with things that I use. I sent an email to a blender company and said, you need little vents on the bottom because always when I pull it off, it's, there's suction and it splashes. And they did it. Blendtec. Wow. Did it. Well done. Yeah, it was kind of cool. You know, that never happens. You should complain about something. <laughs> well, and clearly they go, that does. They go, great. Okay, thanks, buddy. Don't forget to buy another blender next year. Whenever, you know, delete. You ever see those websites that are like 50 life hacks? Do this with an egg carton. Do this with your hangers. Do those are all in many ways metaphorical breakthroughs, right? This is used for one purpose. And then you're like, oh, it could actually be used over here. That's interesting. Good point. All those things you see that's not sold in stores. You're like, but it's so simple. Right. It's the Swiffer or something like that, right? Why not wet it to pick up the lint? I mean, you're on your hands and knees with a rag (laughs) doing the exact same thing. Put a stick on the end of it. Genius. $10 million later or more, I'm sure. (laughs) 
You talk about breakthrough blockers as well. These were kind of important because I feel like tons of entrepreneurs and people solving complex problems run into these problems all the time and they end up having these same breakthrough blockers cause them problems and then they get stressed out about that and then they enhance, these blockers get even more powerful in the first place. So can we talk about these, what they are and how to break yeah. them? The three biggest are fear, failure, and uncertainty. And to be clear, the fear of failure is different from the experience of failure itself. And you need different tools for each. Also, one of the things we hadn't mentioned is that you could, you can separate breakthroughs into intentional breakthroughs. For example, a business innovation, I want to solve X. And unintentional breakthroughs, oh shit, I need a divorce. And fear comes in at different stages. It'll still happen. But for an intentional breakthrough, it happens on the way to. And it could uh, stop you from taking the risks you need to take. For an unintentional breakthrough, it happens after. It's for the implementation. And it stops you from taking the implementation action that you should be taking. And uncertainty just fucks things up in a general right. way. Sure. It's our ability or inability to handle fear, failure, and uncertainty. So those are the three big categories of things that um, stop us on the road to breakthrough. People right now are like, okay, got it. This is how it works. These are things that mess it up. I want to do more of it. And taking naps, great. We heard about Salvador Dali, I think it was, who puts like a pencil or a spoon or something in his mouth yes, or in his hand. He puts a metal key in his hand ah. and puts a metal plate on the floor. And he would start to fall asleep. And as he actually fell asleep, entered the hypnagogic state, he would drop the key. It would hit the pan. It would wake him up. And he would start drawing whatever was in his mind right, right then like and there. clock melting on a table. Yes, exactly. If any of your listeners do get the book, if you have the fear of, I'm not a creative person, jump right to, to page 100 or something like that, because that's where this is. It is critical that you dismantle the imposter syndrome of, I'm just not a creative person. You know how the science of small wins, which has now become really popular, how our brain isn't great at understanding scale. And so a lot of small wins can feel the same way. It can feel more powerful than one big win, the same way that sometimes it's easier to handle a day when you've had one big shitty thing happen than a day when you had tens of, right? Right. What you need to do is to change your self-image. And you can start that with really small things. So one quick example is you look at the objects around you and you start creating backstories for them. You give them a name, you give them a location they came from, and that's a good way to start changing your own subconscious view of yourself as a creative or not creative person. So you basically force yourself to be somehow creative in this really almost mundane way, in a very deliberate way. And then all these small acts of creativity can start changing your mindset about who you are and what you can do. If you do that enough, you're saying it, it sort of shakes the rust off the creative part of your brain where yes. it's okay, it's okay to be this ridiculous, the constraints go out the window. Correct. And bigger things start to happen. It's like those first push-ups we were discussing yeah. earlier. You should also use, and I know you talk about this fairly often in the Art of Charm programs, the impact that authority has on the human brain, sure. right? And so, for example, when you learn to handle the fear of failure, destigmatizing failure itself is different, but having authority figures telling you whether it's real or not, remember, your brain isn't great at differentiating between imagination and reality, having authority figures telling you that it's okay to fuck up, mm -hmm. that can really help in changing the way you approach failure. There is no innovation without failure. If you're not willing to fail, 
by definition, you're only going to do things that have already been tried and proven, right? right. So you'll never do anything new. You cannot demand innovation without the risk of failure. Plus, you know, you're going to fail in your life at various things. You might as well get good at handling it. Yeah, all the time. Unless you're not doing anything at all. That makes sense. There's so many practical things that I really want to get into. I mean, you talk about touching things for texture, looking for colors, different hand movements. Can we explain some of these practicals? Because I'd love to help people get more creative over like the next 20 minutes. Some of the tools are literally directed to connect straight into your genius lounge. So touching for different textures, your inferior parietal lobes, boom, are going to... (laughs) Less impressive than the first. I know, that's a smaller (laughs) boom. Smaller. (laughs) They interpret sensory information, and they're also a part of your genius lounge. So if you start touching like the brick wall on the outside of your building, you just feel all of that. That is a direct line into your genius lounge, and it's pumping information into your genius lounge and sort of waking it up and bringing it to life. Same thing if you're just like looking at all these colors, you're just paying attention to them, so you're forcing yourself to kind of build neural patterns that connect to these different colors, like learning all the new different colors, seeing really differentiating the shades of blue as the sun goes down and trying to create those gradations. Each gradation forces a new neural loop in your brain, which makes you that much more powerful at creating another breakthrough. The book is just full of this stuff. I mean, we talked about creative walking where you've, have you seen this graphic where it's like Einstein, Edison, and all these genius people that have created things. And shows the time they've spent during the day. And every person has a multiple hour long walk. And you're just like, why do these guys walk everywhere? What's the deal? So walking is a wonderful exercise. So physical exercise is a bit of a a silver bullet when it comes to a lot of things. And it's also wonderful when it comes to breakthrough thinking. It oxygenates your brain through movement, but it's not strenuous enough to actually take oxygen away from your brain and put it into your muscles. So it's kind of the perfect middle ground. You don't have to pay a lot of attention right? Spacing out while running, maybe not the best idea. Yeah. High intensity workouts kind of overwhelm you. Right. But walking is gentle enough that you can let your mind wander, which of course is the door opening into the genius lounge. Plus there's lots of things to see. So there's lots of new information coming in, especially if you take walks around places you've never been, right? Taking different routes. So you start noticing, oh, look at what's on the top of that building. Oh, look at how that hill does that. Oh, look at those new birds or that park or that ocean or that tree, wherever you go. And that newness comes in with an oxygenated brain with a thing to do, which is I'm walking. So your executive goes quiet. So it's kind of like a perfect combination of all these things. And for people who are much more goal oriented and like wandering around aimlessly until something hits me is not fun for me, Mm -hmm. like Olivia, uh, we suggest Charles Darwin's approach. He had something he called the sand walk in the back of his house. It was about a quarter or third of a mile loop. But what he would do is he would stack rocks at the start point. And then he'd do one loop and he'd knock a rock off. And then he'd do a second loop and he'd knock another. And he would have problems that, and he would rate them by the number of rocks. So he'd be like, this is a four rock problem. And he'd stack four rocks and then walk the loop. So if you're much more goal oriented, you can actually time bound the walk. Oh, that's interesting. I never heard that before. And of course, the modern day rock walk could be, like you'd said, watching a movie you already know, bouncing a ball, I think was one of the ones in the book. Yeah. Laundry. Anything that allows you to genuinely space out. I'll put a caveat on the movie. Ideally, it would be something without words, because evening listening to a song that you really know, it'll still activate the language. So PFC. Is it in there? Boom. Nice. (laughs) I got the abbreviation down. That's important. There's... Hand movements was an interesting one that I tried while listening to the book. And I I didn't know exactly what you meant, but I thought it was just, you know, even stuff like this. I was doing some fake 
American Sign Language plus gang sign slash nothingness kind of with my hands. And exactly. I, and that's what it kind of came across as. Changing the soundtrack was interesting with different music or something I'd never listened to. And I looked up some sort of African drum thing or this guy was playing some roots, I think, literally. Roots, all <laughs> roots. Sitting in someone else's office was an interesting one that everybody can pretty much access. You just have to convince them you're not crazy or up to no good. And you have to ask them first, you know, if you can sit in their office. Um, and even dressing in something totally different. That is a fascinating one. That one I didn't see coming because yeah. I thought, well, you can go as far as you want with it, I suppose, but genuinely probably shouldn't if you're in an office environment. But yeah, you could put on something brand new. Have you tried this? How different are we talking about here? As comfortable as you are, because empathy is a big part of this. And so the empathetic part of the brain is also connected into the genius lounge. And the genius lounge, part of what it does is it assesses how other people are feeling and it assesses how you're feeling. And so by wearing something that's very different, you can determine exactly how different in one moment. <laughs> Olivia's like ready to pounce <laughs> on me. But by wearing something different, people react differently to you. It feels differently on your body. You're taken in it either seriously or not seriously, depending. And it ups that empathy quotient plus creates a brand new experience that you have to create new neural patterns for. There's been the studies where people wearing white lab coats were both taken more seriously. They were seen as more credible and they had higher levels of self-confidence during the experiment, but also they actually performed better on tests just huh. by standard white. And, you know, it could be they also did tests where they told some people that it was a doctor's coat, some people that it was a researcher's coat and some people that it was a janitor's coat. Uh, same white coat, totally changed. But in the same vein, you could wear footsie pajamas. And roll around on the, on the floor at home. I mean, unless you have a really progressive office yeah. and play with Legos. Yeah. yeah. You could dress in, you could dress in something that is completely opposite. If you're lacking ideas, here's how. You take what you normally do. I normally wear colors, X, Y, and Z. You're going to do the exact opposite. Styles. I normally do A, B, C. You're going to do the opposite. And that's a good way of starting. And here's another way to, to really take note of it for men. Since we live in a very dressed down culture, chances are you don't wear a suit every day. No. Wear a suit. Wear a suit and a tie and just watch how you get responded to. Watch how much more seriously you get taken. Watch how, the, how people's attention is different towards you. And women, wear high heels. Or don't, depending on whatever you do more of. You're just going to notice immediately how different people react to you. I guarantee you women have already run that test. It's the guys that, <laughs> the guys that are thinking, I haven't worn a suit in a while. Women are like, I know damn well what happens when I wear flats. <laughs> All right? Things cost more. I don't get any help at the grocery store. <laughs> Neuroplasticity, speaking of Google X people rolling around on the floor with footsie pajamas, which is what we know they're doing over there, they hire the most plastic people they can find. I think I've read that possibly yeah. in your work or heard it somewhere else. Let's talk about and wrap with neuroplasticity because I know we've talked about it on the show. It's a sort of a, almost a buzzwordy thing, and yet no one knows how to harness it necessarily or how to become more neuroplastic aside from maybe learning Mandarin. Yeah, great. We have, uh, what, three chapters on that? Something like that. <laughs> yeah. We've got lots of tools in there just Funniest on neuroplasticity. Stuff. To give an example of just how integral neuroplasticity is to our brain, every time you build a new thought, your brain physically builds a new structure and all over your brain, new structures are created. So it's a very physical experience. A Chinese woman, 24 years old, stumbles into an ER room, very dizzy, having a hard time keeping her balance. And they do a CAT scan and they discover that the back part of her brain is not there. 
it's full of liquid in her skull. Oh, that's gross. And this is the part of your brain that helps you balance. This is the part of your brain that helps you write. This is the part of your brain that helps you speak. And she's learned how to do all those things, even though this part of her brain isn't there. She was born without it. Oh, born without it. Okay. Because if you lose it, I feel like you just not <laughs> fall off the back of your head. <laughs> right. yeah. No, she was born without it. And literally other parts of her brain wired themselves to take on these tasks. The brain literally was plastic enough to reform itself so that even though it was missing a huge part of itself, it could keep functioning and keep her functioning. So it's not just about the real estate. The brain's made up of parts that can maybe be recruited for different things. Well, fundamentally change. So people who lose their hearing, were born deaf, often have much better visual ability and vice versa. People who are blind very often have incredible hearing. And it's because your visual cortex, if it's getting no information, gets recruited to do other work. And so suddenly you have more neurons being used to interpret sound. Uh, because sometimes those disabilities aren't necessarily, they're not brain-based. It's just maybe your eyes or your ears or something right. are working. So there's just this extra processor in there that's going, hey, I'm bored. Throw me some work. That's a good one, actually. Eric Weinmeier, who climbed Mount Everest blind, and he's one of the examples of blind people learning to see through their tongue. And they, What? Yeah. <laughs> I've never I heard know, this. that's crazy. Watch that one. <laughs> So he's a dramatic example, but it's fairly well established by now. He's climbed the seven summits, seeing through his tongue every time. What they did is that they attach a tiny camera to their tongue. The taste buds, the cells on their tongue, start receiving signals from the camera. Now, clearly, these aren't taste signals. Your brain reconfigures itself to learn how to interpret these electrical signals coming from your tongue as sight rather than as taste. And the tongue, just because it's so sensitive in so many different ways, is that why they connected it to the tongue? Yes. The same way that your eyes technically don't see, your brain sees. Your eyes are just the mechanism to receive the information, to receive the input. Your tongue also is designed to receive information. We use food, but you could actually repurpose it to receive other information. And so that's what they do. They repurpose it to receive visual information that your brain can actually learn to read. Right. I'm, I'm imagining how this works with some sort of static prickles or something like that. And he just happens to be really able to differentiate between one that's in one part or a stronger one in another part. And he's like, this means there's something there. And this means there's not something. Exactly. Something like that. It's not just that it gets that rational. He sees. Oh, he does. Yes. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yes. I thought he was just like imagining. No, 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 no. He sees. Were. Oh, that's incredible. Yes. And so because as Judah was saying, you don't actually see with your eyes. You, your brain has zero direct contact with reality. All it does is build a picture from what your senses are sending it. Technically speaking, if it were only your brain, we could be doing brain surgery on it. You wouldn't feel a thing, right? So his brain genuinely rewired itself. So he has a black and white picture. And you'll see blind people navigating the streets of New York without a cane. Just with their tongue hanging out and a camera on the end of it? (laughs) (laughs) Must be hard to date with that. (laughs) How do we become more neuroplastic? I mean, using our non-dominant hand, that's a good one and really hard. What else to brush your teeth, by the way. That's a really good example. Brushing your teeth with a non-dominant. Yeah. I try to do that all the time. With the electric toothbrush, though, it's kind of cheating, right? Yeah. That is a little cheating. <laughs> <laughs> so using a regular toothbrush or even just using a regular toothbrush with your dominant hand, if you haven't used one for a decade like me, would be hard as well. I think just to give you the, the overarching theme, anytime you do something new, it doesn't matter if you're good at it or not or whatever, anytime you're doing anything new, your brain has to build new connections. You're increasing your plasticity. So Judah can give you some examples and et cetera, et cetera, but that's the field. 
the reason it's so powerful, to go back to the Google X example, is they told a great story where they were working on Project Loon, which is these huge balloons that are flying through the stratosphere to give internet access to the third world. And they were having trouble with the actual material of the balloon. And one of the engineers there one day was just looking at a bag of Doritos. And there was something about the bag of Doritos and the kind of half metallic, thin, foily material. He was like, that's what's going to fix the balloon. And so that's the plasticity that's able to like look at the bag of Doritos and make a neural connection to a giant balloon that's going to float through the stratosphere and bring internet connection to the third world. So a lot of people might be thinking, oh, I'm going to join a brain gym and they're going to increase my plasticity. Like those games where it's like increase your memory power. Yes. And so far, at least, all the research shows that the brain gyms make you excellent at playing their games. I believe that because I've tried those and I've thought, I never see overlap between what I'm doing. And then, of course, when you ask the creators, they go, oh, no, 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 it's subtle, it's subtle, it's subtle. And then I thought, well, study this for an hour a day, study Chinese for an hour a day. Yeah. It just lost the battle. But not because I didn't necessarily believe in the science. I just thought learning Mandarin is much more of a powerful yes. neuroplastic so activity. So learning a language, music, math, and they're all connected, of course, but those three are huge for plasticity. I want to be really clear. It's not about being good. You're not trying to be good at these things per se. Ah, gotcha. But the, the actual practice of doing them increases your plasticity. That's a relief for everybody who's yes, thinking math. Yes, like, exactly. Oh, you don't have man. to be good. It's just the challenge of engaging it. If you want to have fun, we like the thought experiments. And I actually, I did this at IDEO the other day. It was super cool to do it with designers. So imagine a world where gravity it stops working at 10 p.m. So exacting. <laughs> so if you jump at 10 p.m., you just keep going. Uh-huh. Everything just kind of starts to float up at 10 p.m. And then it goes back to normal around 8 a.m. What does the world look like? So going through this, it's like, well, you know, you have to put everything away in cupboards that are padded. Otherwise, everything might break. Your cat could knock something against the ceiling and it could come down in the morning and there'd be glass on the living room floor. So everything is strapped down or glued down. I mean, so this is a thought experiment. Right? Yeah, exactly. For example, and do people have nets over their beds when sure. they sleep? Do you have movies like Sleepless in Seattle where true love is found because there was a net failure and they collided? And they collided sleeping. Yeah. yeah, exactly. For example. You park your car and you've got to clamp it down because otherwise it might float away if it gets windy at night. Yeah, that's super interesting. And it was funny because the designers, they were designing for it. So they were like, you'd have a round home. So when it reversed, it would go up and it'd be a mirror of your home. So you wouldn't really have to deal oh, with so the you chip. did the reversal one, right? right? So, so it's they... like your bed's on the ceiling. <laughs> strapped in there, and then your alarm clock hopefully goes off before you fall face first <laughs> right. on the floor. <laughs> so it was very interesting to hear how they started designing for it, whereas very similar to you, I got very practical about it. It's, uh, yeah, it's that's, how, do yeah. you, how do you actually approach it? But that's just so cool. Having to actually think about a world where a fundamental law is different forces you to actually build new connections. And so do you do this every week or something like that or every month and just to get people to shake off some rust? What's the practice? I mean, I do it all the time, but that's... <laughs> so you're, you'll be walking around and it's like, what if this magical thing was happening? Okay, if you just imagine a world where you were allowed to kick somebody, like that was actually a socially acceptable. And then what are the rules? So are there limits to how hard you can kick somebody? Are there shoes specifically to allow you to do it? Are there pants with like shin guards built in? What's going over the line? What's not? What are the behaviors that create it? What don't? How do those behaviors change over generations? Where something that was like a totally kickable offense. Back in my day, you yeah, exactly. get kicked just for being late for dinner. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Right? So you're just kind of doing this just sort of, it just plays. And so at least once a week, 
right? At yeah. least once a week you want and play it with people. You can sure. do it by yourself if you want, but it's really fun to do it with people. And right. it just forces that new way of doing it. Cards Against Humanity, if you just want to buy a game, sure. like, is a great one for this. Yeah, and funny. I can't stop doing it now that you mention it. Right? Like, <laughs> remember when you used to get kicked in school when you didn't turn in your homework? It's like, oh, they can't do that anymore. It gets really fun. That's the thing. Right. When they're fun, they stick with you and it's a game. And then what you notice is you're like, I'm getting more plastic, mm. right? Because I just keep doing this. I love it. I know we're uh, out of time. I would love it. Is there anything else that I have not asked you that you're like, oh my gosh, we didn't talk about this and we have to? The only thing I want to do is reiterate something Olivia said earlier. Everybody's capable of this. Everybody can have a breakthrough. Everybody has the same mechanism inside their heads. You are walking around with the same breakthrough engine Einstein had. To make that even clear, you cannot be born without this engine. If this engine is damaged, you die. So if you're walking and talking, you have the capacity. I'd say the only last thing is, you are going to need new skills because you're going to need to learn how to handle fear, failure, uncertainty, and other things. But it's just like working a muscle that has atrophied since you were a kid. When we're kids, everything's new. We're super plastic and we have breakthroughs all the time. So all you're doing is building back up a muscle we guarantee you have. Perfect. Judah, Olivia, thank you so much. All right, great big thank you to Judah and Olivia. The book is called The Net and the Butterfly. That'll be linked up in the show notes for this episode as well. There are a lot of, just a ton of practicals. I think we covered maybe a quarter of some of the book here. There was just too much to cover for one show. The book itself is worth having, if not to get the concepts down, but as a reference for a lot of the drills and exercises that you can implement into your life, especially if you find yourself solving complex engineering problems. Well, actually, any kind of problem for that matter. But here in Silicon Valley, they seem to be teaching a lot of not only special forces and those types of people, but uh, the people who solve problems making the things that we create and use every day, including the thing that you're listening to the show on right now. If you enjoyed this, don't forget to thank them on Twitter. We'll have that linked in the show notes as well. And remember, you can tap our album art in most podcast players. You can see the show notes for this episode. They'll be right on your phone. I'm also on Twitter at The Art of Charm, and I post a lot of things there and engage with y'all there. I'm a little bit of a Twitter addict. I use it all the time. It's a great way to get a hold of us here on the show. Our boot camps are live programs that we talk about oh so much. Those details are at bootcamp.theartofcharm.com. I love the boot camps. They are amazing. The amount of change that we see over the next few months and years after boot camp is amazing. And remember, we're sold out a few months in advance. So if you're thinking about it even a little bit, you should get in touch with us ASAP. Get some info from us. You can plan ahead or you can just check out what we're all about. I also want to encourage you to join our AOC challenge at theartofcharm.com slash challenge. Or you can text the word Charmed, C-H-A-R-M-E-D, to 33444. That challenge is about improving your networking and connection skills, inspiring those around you to develop a relationship with you, and we'll also send you our fundamentals toolbox that I mentioned earlier on the show. It includes a lot of practical stuff as well on reading body language, having charismatic nonverbal communication, negotiation techniques, networking, influence strategies, the science of attraction, persuasion tactics, and everything else that we teach here at The Art of Charm. I also do regular videos with drills and exercises to help you move forward. It'll make you a better networker, a better connector, and of course, a better thinker. That's theartofcharm.com slash challenge or text the word charmed in the US to 33444. For full show notes for this and all previous episodes, head on over to theartofcharm.com slash podcast. 
This episode of AOC was produced by Jason DeFilippo. Jason Sanderson is our audio engineer and editor, and the show notes on the website are by Robert Fogarty. I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. Go ahead, tell your friends, because the greatest compliment you can give us is really a referral to someone else, either in person or shared on the web. Word of mouth is everything, so stay charming and leave everything and everyone better than you found them. Thanks for listening to The Art of Charm. Get more confidence, relationship skills, life hacks, and more at theartofcharmpodcast.com.